What comes to mind when you hear the word culture? Think about it for a moment. What comes to mind when you hear the word culture? Is it history? Is it art? Is it uh, musicals? Is it politics? Is it college football? Anybody else thankful that that's back? Culture. You know, actually, there's some really big news happening in Marshall. I don't know if you guys have been paying attention to what goes on in Marshall, but this week I heard that uh, the rapper Drake, and if you, maybe you don't listen to Drake, I don't really either, but I heard that Drake actually came out with a couple of songs on his new album where he mentions Marshall. Uh, yeah, Marshall, Texas. That's true. And uh, I, I mean, it's, I don't know what to even really make of that. People in Marshall are going crazy. They're like, who does Drake know in Marshall? And uh, I don't know. I don't, it's not me. Uh, but, uh, you know, what's the deal with that? All I know is really, I think really all that Marshall people care about, by the way, is that it seems that he didn't mention Longview. That's kind of just like the, <laughs> the only really thing that matters to them. And uh, is that culture? Is that culture? Yeah. I mean, it is. It is culture. <clears throat> but we're going to talk about culture in a broader sense today. We're going to talk about how culture is really just how you experience the world. How you experience the world around you. That is culture. So, interestingly enough, sitting in church today, you might think that we don't really have a big impact on culture. But historically speaking, over the last 2,000 years, the church as an organization, as an institution, has probably been the most influential culture-shaping entity in existence. Think about this, like the advent of universities. If you have a university degree or you know someone who's gone to college, you can probably thank the church for that at some point. If you've been to a hospital, if you know someone who's ever been to a hospital, that was a, a process of in, that was influenced and shaped by the church as an institution. If you've ever experienced or been a part of like humanitarian aid or social justice, or if you've listened to classical music, or if you've seen art in a museum, all of these things are either designed or shaped or significantly influenced by the church over the last 2,000 years. So what's happened? What happened? Because it seems like today our world is increasingly less concerned with what the church has to say about anything. I mean, it almost seems that they're not even not concerned with it. They actually kind of think we've lost our minds. Like the world would look at us and say that we're ignorant, that we're just holding on to a relic of the past. That what we're experiencing here in church is just something that's fake. It's a myth. So what would we have to say that could have any possible benefit for culture? That's how the world sees us. So has the church lost its ability to shape culture? Well, I mean, I think if we're honest, the reality is if we continue in the belief that church is defined as a place and a time, maybe a set of buildings on a property, an institution, a 501c3, a nonprofit. If we continue believing that that is the definition of church, then yeah, we will lose our ability to shape culture. 
Because that's not the definition of church that Jesus promised would be eternally victorious. Now, you'll remember just several weeks ago when uh, Pastor Paul in, uh, in this campus, and then I got to be a part of her in the uh, Marshall campus, sharing the message from the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus built the church on himself, that he is the foundation, and he introduces this idea of church to his disciples using a word that doesn't mean property or facilities or a time or a place, but it means people, right? The church is an assembly of the called out ones. That's how Jesus planned for the church to be, an assembly of called out ones, people who are called out of darkness into light, like we just sang. People who are called out of death into life. People who are called out to be set apart from the influence of the world, yet applying influence to the world. We're set apart, called out, different and unique. And God gives his followers through Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 5 a world-changing vision. Jesus is teaching his disciples that they're going to have an impact on the world. Just these few guys in the ancient Near East, big world around them, Roman, Roman government oppressing them. And here they are, and Jesus is saying, you're going to change the world. And he gives them a few things that, that I think if we would take the same vision and apply it to our lives personally, where we would recognize that Jesus is, has called us into being the church in action, not just going to church. When we get to take Jesus' vision and apply, to it, apply it to us personally, we will see culture be shaped. We'll see the world change right before our eyes. We'll be amazed at what God could do through us. So grab your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to look at what Jesus intended for the church to be like. Before the church ever existed, Jesus was speaking to his followers about how they interface with culture, how they interact, how they would shape culture for the glory of God. So in Matthew, what the story is, is that uh, Jesus in chapter 4 called his disciples to come and follow him. They, they left everything behind. They went and followed him. And then what they saw by faith and then their experience with Jesus was that his popularity grew like crazy that Jesus became wildly popular, that crowds everywhere he showed up would show up wanting to hear the next teaching or see the next miracle. And Jesus, I think, as I study the Sermon on the Mount, which starts in Matthew chapter 5, I think he kind of maybe even saw it in, in the eyes of his disciples as, as their eyes got wide and they thought, wow, we're a part of something really popular. Wow, this is a movement that's big and and. And he chose us. And I think Jesus looked into their eyes and saw that and thought, okay, we need to have a little come-to-Jesus moment where we set the record straight about what it's going to be like to follow me. And so Jesus retreats up to the mountain. And his disciples follow him. And I picture them kind of catching up to him on the side of the mountain and, and maybe sitting down around him, maybe out of breath, and Jesus just beginning to teach them and pour into them that, to say, hey, this is what it's going to look like to follow me. I know that you see the crowds, and I know it seems like I'm popular, but it's not going to always be that way. And so he says in verse 13, we'll read it together. And you can just think of yourself sitting 
and letting Jesus speak to you, he says this. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's, it's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You, you're the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This is a world-changing vision, but the disciples were interacting with this in a, in a unique way because if you read from the beginning of chapter 5, you'll notice it's the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who. And Jesus is teaching this kind of generic blessing, like anybody has access to this blessing if they'll choose his way of life. But then in verse 11, he shifts his focus of his teaching and speaks directly to his disciples. He says, you are, you are. And he continues that pattern in verse 13. And he's saying, look, I know that I've talked about how to follow me in generic terms, that everybody has access to blessing and happiness that comes through following Jesus. But you know what's going to happen to you when you do that? You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be opposed. People aren't going to be for you. They're not going to think you're, you're on the right team. They're going to think you're ignorant. They're gonna, people are going to make fun of you. People are going to revile you, is what the Gospel of Luke would say. They're going to spit on you. And so he's setting the record straight, going, if you're going to follow me, look, it's not all just like rainbows and lollipops. Like It's going to be difficult because you are going to be set at odds with the culture around you, but not just to be punished, but to have an impact on that culture. And so he says in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. This is the first of three things that I think Jesus wants you to hear today as the church, to realize in a personal way how you can have an impact on the world as part of God's church. He says this, you are the salt of the earth. And what he means is your identity is determined by God. Now, later in the Beatitudes, later in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will actually address cultural problems, things that uh, even in the first century were issues that were causing wreaking havoc on the world. And I know the disciples probably wanted to know what Jesus' answers were going to be for those things. And I know you also, and I want to know what's God's answer for the cultural problems we face. What should we be talking about? What should we be elevating? What's the solution? We want to get right to the solution, and we want to fix things in our world. But where Jesus starts in the Sermon on the Mount is by addressing his followers' hearts, by speaking directly to them. You see, Jesus wants to invest in his followers to speak into their lives before he addresses the issues in culture. And I'm wondering today if you're willing to let Jesus speak into your life the same way. I know we all want answers to cultural problems, but would you be willing to open up your own heart to what Jesus might want to say to you today? You're part of the church. You're part of his church, and he wants to use you to make an eternal impact on this world to shape culture. And so to do that, we got to see what he says. At first, we're salt of the earth. He's saying your identity is as salt. You are salt. 
If culture is how you experience the world, then identity is how the world experiences you. So what kind of impact are you having on the world? You know, if we heard this phrase, salt of the earth today, you would think it's just like a good old boy, right? Like, that guy's salt of the earth. Like, he's just honest and good. He's hardworking. He's down to earth, right? And, and that's what we would think. But Jesus intended something totally different, so much deeper. He was saying as salt, and you could even think and picture in your mind the Dead Sea uh, right there in that region. It was full of salt. Salt was uh, immensely valuable in their culture. And they would be thinking that as salt, Jesus says, I'm salt of the earth. Like as salt, he's saying that you would be a purifying agent, like purifying to the contamination of sin in the world. That's going to put them at odds with their culture. He would be saying that you're going to preserve the kingdom of God like salt is a preservative. You're going to preserve the kingdom of God on earth. You have a role in bringing about God's kingdom. He's going to say that you have a role as salt to, to expose and, and bring to the surface the goodness of God from creation that's been lost or masked by sin. Jesus is saying, you have an identity in me. You don't have to be confused about what your identity is. I'm giving you purpose. I'm giving you mission. I'm giving, I'm telling you who you are and what you're to be in this world so that you can have an impact. You are salt. And by following Jesus, you've got an identity that distinguishes you from culture. You're distinct from the culture around you. Yet you're eternally valuable when you apply that distinction to the culture. When you come in contact as salt with the culture, things start to happen. Things start to change. You have an effect on it. Just like salt has an effect on what you put it on. When I was a graduate in college, I got to go with my family to celebrate. And we went to a Mexican food restaurant uh, because Texas, right? And so we, we went and uh, they had tableside guac. And uh, we got some guacamole. They bring the cart out, you know. And I'm just going to confess to you, um, I'm remembering the story incorrectly, apparently. My parents were in the 8 o'clock sermon. And so if you go online, you see the 8 o'clock service from this morning. I said we had a waiter. Well, they corrected me. It turns out we had a waitress. Uh, this is several years ago. So. But they did corroborate the rest of the story, which is that the waitress brings out the tableside guac cart and it is... is is uh, getting the ingredients, you know, and, and putting them all in with the avocados and everything. You're going to mash it all up and make guacamole. And she takes the bowl of salt, which is probably designed for them just to, like, get a little pinch and, you know, kind of sprinkle in there and mix it in, maybe get a little more based on your taste. But she takes the whole bowl and just, <laughs> just dumps it in. And we're like, whoa, 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 that's going to be really salty. And I don't know, maybe she was like, maybe it was her first day, you know, bless her heart, but she, uh, she said, no, this is our recipe, and, and it's actually sugar, and you're going to really want it. It makes it really good. And we're like, look, we're Texans. We eat a lot of guacamole, and uh, I don't think you're fooling anybody, uh, but okay, like, we'll give it a shot. And so I'm a good sport. Take a chip, dip it in, and that bite is just like I put a sardine in my mouth. Like, it was so, oh, I could just, it was, it, it it had such an effect on the guacamole with the amount that was in there. It was just like overpowering, like it was offensive. And sometimes salt is offensive to what it's applied to. Think about the phrase salt in a wound, like it hurts. 
But when salt is a purifying agent, sometimes it's got to do some work. And sometimes it means if we're going to have an effect on our culture, that we're going to have to stand out and maintain our distinction to the point that it could potentially be offensive to our culture. And Jesus says we've got to be okay with that because that's who he's made us to be. That's our purpose in life is to be distinct from the world around us, to represent him in a world that wants nothing to do with him so that we can have an impact for him on the culture. So if your identity is how the culture experiences you, what Jesus is calling to you is a life of distinction that makes a difference for him. So the question I have to ask myself is this, is is when people experience Jeffrey, are they experiencing Jesus? And you can put your own name in that. When people experience me, are they experiencing Jesus? Are they experiencing his love and his grace, his forgiveness, his redemption? Or are they just experiencing just another person? There's nothing like Jesus who just blends in to culture. Jesus warned about this. He says in verse 13, he says, If salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything. So he's calling us to be distinct from the world, like not to give in to this temptation to just blend in and not to stand out. And he's saying that, that you know, if we can make a distinction for him. If we're, are we blending in or are we not? And he says, if you're not going to be distinct, you're no longer good for anything. You might as well be thrown out and trampled. Now, let me just make the clarification here, because you need to know this. What this verse in verse 13 is not talking about, it's not talking about losing your salvation. I mean, the Bible is clear. You can't lose your salvation. God holds it. Your salvation is secure with him, but he is talking about your effectiveness in living for Christ in our culture. And what's interesting is the word good. You're no longer good for anything. Now, we understand the word good to mean like favorable or profitable or, uh, you know, it's of a benefit to something, right? It's good and it's valuable. And uh, what's interesting, though, is that that word shows up in verse 16, talking about good works. But uh, the word that Jesus uses for good here, even though it's translated the same, is actually a completely different Greek word. And the word for good here in verse 13 carries with it the meaning of strength and power. Strength and power. It's like Paul Coleman and I were talking this week about this message, and I loved what he said about it. He said, you know, that word that Jesus uses for good here, what he's trying to say is that salt that loses its taste is like it's lost its strength to make a difference by entering into the fray. That's what Paul said. That was his definition. It's like, it's like salt that's lost its strength to make a difference by entering into the fray. And so think about your life. As you blend in the culture around you, if you don't stand out, if you don't look like what the Bible calls us to look like as followers of Jesus, if you're not making a distinct difference in the world for Christ, then you're just blending in. You've lost your strength to make a difference. Your power to make a difference is gone. You've lost your purpose. So what's the fray? What was Paul talking about when we talked about, he talks about you lost your, your strength to make a difference by entering the fray. 
Well, it could be any number of things. I mean, we know that like culture, the way we experience the world shows up in different ways in public policy and in politics and pop culture. And so are we just supposed to be people who stand up against those things? Well, yeah, I mean, Jesus does call us to do that. But what I don't want you to miss is the reality of what salt is, that in every single circumstance, salt has its impact on what it comes in contact with. Right, so you, you might be pretty far removed from public policy or, or from a pop culture, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't stand up for what's right. That just means maybe you should focus on what's immediately around you. Sometimes we give way more attention to what's so far away from us that we forget to give attention to what's right there by us. And the fray is what we come in contact with. So if you want the strength to make a difference, you got to remember that Jesus has made you salt of the earth so that the people immediately closest to you can be impacted for Jesus Christ through your life. When people experience you, do they experience Jesus? That's the question. When people experience you, do they experience Jesus? And if we're going to be distinctly identified with Jesus, we've also got to realize that our influence is going to be deliberately public. There's a, uh, a trend in Christianity which I think has been influenced by our culture at large, which is to believe that my faith is personal and private. That faith is something that's personal and private. That, it, that it's, hey, what I do on my time and, and in my way is my right. I have a right to my freedom of religion. And, and people would say that you don't need to push that on anybody. You don't need to be telling people about your faith. You, don't, you just need to practice it and keep it to yourself. And can I just tell you that that's the opposite of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying to you today, hey, if you're going to be part of the church, if you're part of, of, of this assembly of people called out, called out of darkness into life, called out of, uh, in, into light, called out of death into life, then what's going to happen is you're going to need to be deliberately public with your faith. Deliberately public. Jesus says in verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Can't be hidden. It's going to be seen. It needs to be seen. Uh, have you noticed lately uh, that Halloween decorations are already up in stores? I walked into Lowe's the other day in Marshall. I ran into someone uh, that I know who was buying Halloween decorations. And at first I was like, whoa, it's like, how is this already time for Halloween? Um, and it's funny to me because Halloween is kind of like this celebration of darkness. I mean, I don't know how you celebrate, but everything's just dark. It's like all black and, you know, there's spiders and spider webs and all this kind of stuff. You know, everything's just dark. But the universal symbol for celebrating Halloween, I think you know what it is. It's the porch light. The porch light. It's the universal symbol. You know, you got trick-or-treaters coming around. You want people to come and get candy from your house? Turn on the light. If you don't want anybody to know your home, you don't want anybody knocking on your door, you don't want to share what you have, turn the light off, right? So as a kid, I'm, I'm going around my neighborhood and, uh, and, you know, over in Hallsville where I grew up, uh, our neighborhood didn't have a lot of street lights. Uh, it was pretty dark. And so just kids out wandering in the dark is, you know, we live in a different world today, but that's how we did it back then. And we'd just be out wandering around and, you know, you get to a street and you look down and you see the porch lights. 
And you're like, all right, like this, like a beacon of hope, right? Like we got some candy coming. We're going to get some treats. It's going to be good. And so me and my buddies would go and we'd go up to those houses. And here we are with real and eternal hope. Yet most of us, when we walk out of a Sunday morning worship gathering or we turn off the worship gathering on, on Facebook or on YouTube, we shut off our lights. We turn off the light. And I don't know if it's maybe that we just don't want people bugging us. We just want to keep what we do with our faith private. Hey, maybe it's, maybe it's you just don't feel like equipped to talk about your faith. Maybe you don't feel like you have a whole lot to offer somebody. Whatever it is, Jesus is saying that you got to keep the light on. You've been called out of darkness. You've been called into his light. Jesus has made us into a beacon of hope, a light to the world, pushing back the darkness, pointing people to Jesus, who's the eternal light of the world. And you might say, but hey, I'm just one person. Like, what kind of difference can I make? Well, this is what I love about these verses, because Jesus actually shows us the kind of difference you can make. Look at the trajectory of verses 14 and 15. He starts by saying, you're the light of the world, that a city on a hill. So he starts big, like you're the light of the world. That's huge. And then he gets a little bit smaller, and he goes, a city on a hill can't be hidden. And then he says in verse 15, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. So if you flip that and take that trajectory the other direction, what you see is what starts in the home impacts the world, right? The, the, the influence of the church on culture rises and falls with the influence of Christ in our homes. That's where we start. And so you might feel like I'm just one person, but yeah, you're one of many. And that's what's beautiful about Jesus' definition of church is that we're not dependent on one light or ten lights in our city. No, we have hundreds and hundreds of lights that are shining brightly for Jesus. And when your homes are shining for Jesus and you're leading your children spiritually, when you're leading your family and your closest friends and circles of influence spiritually, you're being a light for Jesus, then our homes light up and our cities become a beacon of hope to reach the entire world. The world won't be able to ignore what God is doing through people who follow Jesus and make a deliberately public influence for him. You know, parents, we love to bring our kids to church. I love bringing my kids to church. I do. Uh, and I, I'm so thankful for our children's ministries, for our student ministries. Uh, but can I just tell you that the surefire lasting impact, the eternal impact will happen when we take personal ownership of our faith and lead our children spiritually in our homes. That's where God's going to make the big lasting eternal difference. 
And I'm grateful for Chelsea, who you met on the video just a few moments ago, who's our children's minister at Marshall, and Annalisa and her team here in Longview. I'm grateful for Will and Catherine and, and Michael here in Longview for our student ministry and for Aaron over in Marshall. These guys get it. They see the big picture. They want to they equip parents to lead their children spiritually, but parents have got to catch the vision to see the kind of difference Jesus can make in your home. It doesn't stop in your home. It actually changes the world. So take ownership of your faith. Lead spiritually. You might say, well, I'm, I'm single. Or I'm an empty nester. Or I, I live by myself. I don't have kids. What, what about me? Well, it's easy. Just take your closest circle of influence and ask yourself the question, am I being a light for Jesus in that circle of influence? Am I being a light for Jesus in my closest circle of influence? And then to take it a step further, am I being a light for Jesus in all my circles of influence? Because integrity is going to be the difference maker. When we talk about making an impact for the kingdom and that our our identity is given to us, determined by God, that our influence is deliberately public, we have to recognize that integrity is what's going to be the difference maker to actually make an impact on our culture. What do I mean by integrity? Well, really the simple definition is this. It's just that we're going to be sold out, committed to a single identity. That who I am right here in front of you here today is who I am when I'm with my kids. It's who I am when I'm at staff meeting. It's who I am in the the break room at the office building. It's, it's, It's who I am anywhere on the sports field, in in my classrooms. It's that who I am in one place is who I am everywhere, even when no one else is around. That's what integrity is. And so how does integrity become the difference maker for culture? Well, Jesus says in verse 16, he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And I think this is great. I think we love the idea that people will see the difference in our lives and want what we have. We talk about that. When we talk about sharing Jesus, we know you can show and you can tell, right? And we love to be people who show. We talk about show all the time. Look, hey, I'm just going to live differently. People are going to see the difference in me and they're going to want to know. But hey, can I just be honest? I'm not that awesome. I don't always get it right. Like what people see in me is not always what I think Jesus wants them to see. I don't think it's always making the distinct difference that Jesus wants me to make. So then how can I have integrity? How can I do that? Well, it's simple. I I think that we can be people who own up to our shortfalls. And that will make the biggest difference in our culture. People who own up to our shortfalls is where we come short, where we miss the mark. You know, when you see the gap between who you are with some people and who you are with other people, or when you see the gap between who you are in public versus who you are in private, you probably feel guilt and shame. That's just our natural instinct. But there's good news. 
And the good news is that God isn't trying to guilt you and shame you into living the right life. No, God is bringing you along with his grace and his forgiveness. If you would be willing to admit where you've missed the mark, if you would confess to him, 1 John 1, 9 says if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins, to, con- to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, right? God wants to restore you. He wants you to, to be having integrity in all of your venues of life and all your circles of influence. And so integrity becomes the difference maker, not when we are perfect in every way, but when we're willing to admit where we come short. Think about how impactful it would be on your relationships, the joy that would be restored to, to your relationships when you admit where you came short. You probably think that it's going to make people think less of you. And if I show up and I tell that person where I came short, if I admit to them that I, I was different than I should have been, if I, if I go to that person and I, I admit my mistakes, they're going to think less of me. But you know the opposite's true. The opposite's always true. When we admit where we come short, when we admit our wrongdoings, when we admit our failures, that it actually restores relationships and actually builds trust with people. It actually lets people gain a greater respect for the person who is admitting. You see, sometimes your greatest failure is what God sees as your greatest opportunity to shine your light for Jesus. Because the foundation of our faith is built on Jesus forgiving our sin. Jesus extending grace and forgiveness to us. So can you imagine what our world would look like if the church, if people of the church normalized confessing sin to one another, if we normalized confessing sin to God, if we normalized showing the kind of grace and forgiveness to one another that God has so freely and richly shown us in Jesus Christ. That's what our world needs. Our world has no idea about grace and forgiveness. They think it's all about guilt and shame. People are always putting each other down. People in our culture are always, you know, demonizing one another. And you see it everywhere. Conflict is just there's nobody can agree. And it means we can't have relationships with each other. But if we could just admit where we were failing, we could experience the grace of God in our lives and we could share that freely with others. And man, it would change the world. It would change the world. Do you need to confess today? Do you need to confess a secret sin? What's God calling you to do with this? To close the gap on your integrity, to experience his grace and forgiveness and to be able to freely share that with others. Do you need to go to your family and seek their forgiveness? Maybe you've been living a life that's two-sided. Maybe at work you live one way and at home you live another. Maybe at church you live one way and, and at work you live another. Maybe you need to seek those people's forgiveness. Maybe you need to call that person that you gossiped about last week. They don't even know you said anything, but you do, and God does. Maybe you need to call and make it right so that you can have integrity because that will be the difference. See, culture shaping always starts with character shaping. And that's what Jesus was doing before he would answer the cultural problems in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, but I need to tell you who you are in me. I need you to understand your identity. I need you to do the work inside your own life so that you can actually make an impact on the world. 
I need you to start close to home in your circles of influence and then build from there so that you can shape culture. Jesus said here in verse 16 that your good works will be seen and that'll bring glory to God. But you know, good works don't always have to be good deeds. Like sometimes the best thing you can do is just admit the worst thing you did so that you can experience the grace and forgiveness of God so that you can share that freely with others because that's who Jesus is. And that's the kind of impact he wants us to have on the world as salt and light, to be a beacon of hope, to be people who stand up for the truth, people who are willing to take the attention, both good and bad, of the world if it means more people can hear about Jesus and know him in a personal way. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes today. And just to close out distractions and, and wrap up, and as Nate comes and gets ready to lead us in a brief time of response, I want to point you to John chapter 3. As your eyes are closed and you're just kind of thinking and maybe even praying, God's listening, he's speaking to you. I wanted you to hear what his words were, the words of Jesus from John chapter 3. Verse 17, he says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Do you feel condemned today? The world feels condemned by the church. I wonder what would happen if we stood up for the truth, but not in a condemning way, but in a, a rescuing way, the kind of way that Jesus treats us. What would happen? How could we shape our culture when people experience the goodness of God? Verse 16 in John chapter 3 says, God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. As Nate leads us, I'm going to give you two ways to respond. Number one is, when you hear about your identity in Christ and you think about your, your influence on your circles of influence and when you think about your integrity among your circles, are you living in one identity? Your response today may be to confess sin. And it may be just to ask God for the strength to make a difference. Others of you need to respond to Jesus by trusting Jesus with your life for the forgiveness of your sin. He said anyone, anyone who believes in Jesus will not perish but will have eternal life. If that's you today, I just want to lead you in a brief prayer. And then we're going to sing this song of response and you're going to have a moment to really deal with, with God. But if you need to put your faith in Jesus, would you just say something to him like this? God, I know I've messed up. I know I've missed the mark. I've fallen short. 
And I know I can't save myself. I need Jesus to forgive me. And God, I want to receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers. And I want to live my life for Jesus by faith.